Hi, everybody. John Atak, as you probably know, and my friend, John Hunter, PhD. Hi, John. Hi there. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. And yourself? Yeah, good. Coming to the end of the year, um, a little bit less work. So, yeah, feeling a bit more relaxed. Good. And I hear that you have a publisher for your upcoming book. It seems like it, yes. Uh, I signed a, a contract yesterday and so now it's just the small task of ensuring that the book is um, in order so that they're happy to to put it out there. But mm -hmm. um, from the feedback I've received so far, uh, yeah, I think it will be. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I've, as yet I've only had time to skim your manuscript, but uh, I'm tremendously impressed with the conversations we've had. And I think you have something very important and quite new to express. So uh, I hope it will go well. Thanks so much. Yeah, I mean, I, I sent it to a, a sort of a new colleague of, of mine um, who's an emeritus professor. I haven't asked for permission to share her review, so I won't uh, uh, give her name, but I thought it was quite a direct and um, positive review when she came back and she said, you know, when I when I first was asked to do this review, I thought it would be quite a chore. But um, as soon as I started reading it, I was absolutely hooked and everything made sense and all that sort of thing. So I think that that's quite a, um, yeah, that was really good to hear. Mm. Yeah, certainly impression that I had, for, you know, both from our conversations where, where you've been, um, you know, very exact and very succinct in, in what you said and, and articulate. But, but, you know, reading what I have read, it it is a straightforward idea that you're putting forward and let me underline again i think a very important idea in a field where we should have noticed this before that that's what and, i feel about it and i and i think that that's actually been quite a consistent feedback so i've had a couple of colleagues read through the draft and they come back to me and they kind of say this all makes complete sense i can't believe nobody else has sort of figured this out before you know so I like that idea that um, it is quite intuitive, it does make sense, and it, it just sort of requires, you know, leading a person by the hand. So if you've got the first bit of information, and then the second bit, then the third, then everything really mm -hmm. just fits together quite nicely. And I suppose for, for anyone listening, the, the book is really on a, a natural explanation for uh, religious experiences, particularly within Christianity. And it's not necessarily that it might only be applicable to christianity but that's the the religion that i'm most familiar with and that's the religion that um i was uh, a part of when i had what i believe to be a religious experience so mm -hmm. um and again we we have spoken about this in in some of the other discussions but to very briefly summarize in 2000 and to 2003, I was living in, in London. I had a manic episode, which is the elevated state of, of bipolar disorder. And I thought that I was having a religious experience, so much so that I resigned from my job. I started working for the church and I was, you know, very much convinced that it was, you know, 100% convinced that it was mm -hmm. a, an experience of God. And as often happens with bipolar disorder, the, the mania or the elevated state was followed by a very deep depression. And during that time, it really urged me to consider the possibility that it wasn't something supernatural and that maybe it was something natural that was going on. 
And I kind of thought to myself, well, if I could be fooled by an experience like this, could other people not also be fooled by by similar natural experiences? And that really kicked off my my interest in religious and spiritual experiences. And essentially the book makes the argument that anyone or pretty much anyone can experience these elevated states that are typically associated with bipolar disorder. Um, There's a very specific process that can put people into these states. um, And Christianity, whether intentionally or not, facilitates that precise process. So the argument is that uh, if a person goes through a period of psychological suffering, which might include feelings like guilt, shame, inadequacy, and fear, and I think anyone that's spent a bit of time in Christianity can understand how those feelings might emerge and how they might be prompted by some of the um, specific verses in the Bible. And even more particularly by certain denominations that that you might have a a leader of the the church that really emphasizes those those elements. And so you have the sense of guilt, shame, inadequacy, and fear, and you might ruminate on those feelings for a period of time. And then Christianity also offers a solution to those, those feelings. So, you know, if you give your life to Christ and you ask for forgiveness, basically you're wiped clean. So you have this process of psychological suffering followed by social reward so all of that guilt shame inadequacy and fear is abruptly removed and replaced with a sense of love and affirmation and reconciliation with with god and what i argue in the book and i provide a fair amount of evidence for is that this can lead to an elevation in dopamine or seeking arousal that the the symptoms or the effects of seeking arousal are just what you might anticipate in a religious experience the feelings of love and joy and hope and optimism and boldness and uh, incredible meaning and significance and, and those sorts of things. So if you experience that elevated state in a religious context, so for example, in a church or even at home praying for forgiveness, it's quite plausible that you might interpret that elevated state as an encounter with the, with God or um, an experience of the Holy Spirit or some sort of religious experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Battle for the Mind by William Sargent, written in, I think, 1957. Um, he is a psychiatrist writing in the 1950s. He's very cautious is what in what he's saying. He says, look, I'm a Methodist, so I'm going to write something about John Wesley. And he gives a description of, of a typical revival meeting hosted by John Wesley, where there'd be the threat of hell, which would be, you know, writ large. And so you would induce this, this feeling of, of fear and the shame in the person. And then there'd be the, you know, and heaven is where, where all tensions are released and, and you will be perfectly happy. You'll be in a bliss state. And then his, his final line was, as you are walking home tonight, you could be stricken words to that effect. And people yeah. would quite typically at these meetings, they'd start twirling round and fall to the floor. And when they rose up, they'd have been converted. They'd been filled with the Holy Spirit from their perception. And this was so powerful that Sergeant says there's a description of, of a man who starts out from the back of the hall shouting criticism at Wesley. 
gets a few steps, turns around and falls to the ground and comes up converted. So this very powerful medicine that we're dealing with here. And I think it's very important to, to separate out that if you do feel you've had a supernatural experience of some kind, it is good to look at natural experiences. And, you know, just to, yeah. you know, not denying anything, not going against anything here, but it could well be that, you know, if you've done some sort of exercise or, you know, a meditative practice that you've actually stimulated dopamine and that now you're suddenly getting that reward of all of this dopamine flooding your system yes sure and and i mean i i think when i've mentioned the the topic of the book to anyone it comes across as oh this is you know going to be very controversial and i and i guess it it might be and maybe the the idea is that i'm a sort of hard-nosed atheist and i want to destroy religion or something like that. And that, that's certainly not the case. So mm. I, I I kind of feel like, you, you know, sometimes there's there's amazing value in, in an experience. And if you believe it to be a religious experience, it can bring about incredible change in your life as it does in many people's lives. And that can be a, a wonderful thing. And I think that you and I are both very aware of just the fact that sometimes it can be used for manipulative purposes and sometimes it, it can yeah it, it can be used as a as a tool of of manipulation mm -hmm. so i don't want to you know undermine anyone's personal experiences if this has been something useful to them if it's something that's brought them a greater sense of meaning and direction in life and it's not hurting anyone else then i, I don't want to detract from that at all but but certainly the, the idea that there may be a natural explanation for some of these religious experiences is something that for me was very much worth exploring because, you know, I had this experience that I was so convinced was a religious experience. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that it was actually pathological. And so I really wanted to, to make um, sense of that. And I mean, I think the, the comparison in the, in the book is, you know, in the past things like storms and eclipses and earthquakes mm -hmm. and, disease and all sorts of things were attributed to God or gods. And subsequently, we've realized that there are ways that those things can that that they can be explained without invoking the supernatural. And my argument is that there are ways of explaining some uh, religious experiences without invoking this, the supernatural. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the point is to, I think, to be skeptical in a healthy way <clears throat> and to look at the possibilities the explanations that are out there and it doesn't necessarily detract from um somebody's religious belief we're all entitled to our own metaphor through which to uh, assess the universe and the reality is as far as i know none of us has actually found the truth none of us actually understands completely everything that's going on yeah. but it if we do attribute supernatural explanations, which of course many authoritarian cults do, then we can be led and we can be deceived and, and we can be brought into psychological slavery by people who are in fact, you know, Wizard of Oz characters uh, simply manipulating things. I, I've just got a chapter coming out. Um, I, think, I think the book's called um, 
Eastern religions and spirituality and psychiatry or something like that, <clears throat> which I'm told is going to be announced at the American Psychi Psychiatric Association meeting this month. Very exciting. And I'm one of about 50 people who's contributed a little scrap to it. <clears throat> but the other people are largely practitioners of a particular religion who are psychiatrists and often professors of psychiatry yeah. and who are putting forward their view. I mean, I've only read um, Professor Koenig's uh, chapter on Buddhism, which I was really impressed by. You know, he's really fair-minded in the way that he approaches it. But I'm, I'm told that there was some trepidation of the chapter that Steve Hassan and I have contributed because in it we list one by one techniques that you can use to create a physiological reaction. So yeah. meditation, staring at things, which brings about the Gansfeld effect, or yeah. um, hyperventilation, which is practiced by Rajneeshis and other people. They go, <laughs> until yeah, yeah. they feel dizzy. And as I went through this list and sleep deprivation and, and fasting and all of these things, it's sort of going, actually, all of these methods are applied in conventional religion. Yeah. And those who <clears throat> undertake them believe that they're having a transcendent experience. <clears throat> it's not to say that there aren't transcendent experiences. It is yeah. to say there are ways of explaining you know, many of, of these experiences. Yes. Some of yeah. them. And and I, I I like that idea that there's a that there's a book with multiple perspectives kind of coming through because that also wasn't um, a goal of mine. I mean, I've been sitting with this since 2003, you know, and kind of having the the major explanation since um, like 2010. So 13, nearly 14 years now, I've been sitting with this. And if somebody had just had a conversation with me in depth about this, I probably would never have you know, written a PhD on it or uh, produced a book on it. But it, it's almost like I, I just want to have this conversation. So I'm quite open to people pulling it apart. And I'd, I'd love people to do that, you know. So mm. if it's possible, if my if my thinking is flawed, then somebody must explain to me um, why it's flawed. But it makes a lot of sense to me. And in, and in terms of uh, the... I use, for example, uh, William Lane Craig, who's a very well-known um, Christian apologist um, and analytical philosopher. So, I mean, if you if you look at any of the debates with any of the atheists, with Sam Harris and Hitchens mm -hmm. and Dawkins and Lawrence Krauss, and more recently he sat down and chatted to Jordan Peterson and Alex O'Connor and a bunch of those guys, William Lane Craig is the the sort of Christian apologist that seems to be called into these debates quite frequently and because I don't want to straw man a version of Christianity or a version of uh, conversion or of belief formation that's only adhered to by a small number of people or by by people who are incapable of critical thinking or who, or who are unwilling to think critically about things I, I wanted to use him as an as an example because he seems to be almost the, the poster child of critical thinking within um, Christianity. Mm. And I think that's what is notable about him is that he makes a distinction between knowing God exists and showing God exists. So while he has all of these intellectual and academic arguments for showing that, that God exists, 
he basically says the fundamental way that we know Christianity is true is through the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, he basically says that's how we know that it's true. And then he says arguments and evidence can then confirm the Spirit's witness. So it's it's not kind of an uneducated group of people that I'm sort of poking fun at for the fact that they are using personal experience of God as the primary way that they know that that God exists. I'm actually looking at somebody who is very capable of of critical thinking, probably a lot more than than me in in many ways, um, based on his training in um, philosophy. Um, and I'm kind of going, well, let's look at him as an example. Let's look at his arguments and let's just see whether there are some problems with his his arguments. So, he, I mean, for example, he says, you know, if the skeptic can show me or give me good reason as to why I should doubt these personal experiences, then I'm quite happy to, to relook at them. Mm-hmm. And I think by the end of my book, he should have good reason to, to doubt his experiences and to and to kind of think well maybe basing my belief on these personal experiences um particularly given what he went through prior to his uh, religious conversion um is is maybe something that he that he should do so for example he explains that in the months leading up to his religious experience he was feeling an incredible amount of psychological suffering so feelings of guilt and shame and inadequacy and all of those kind of things and then he converted he gave his life to to christ and then he felt this incredible infusion of joy filling him up and he felt like a balloon that was just about to burst and you know there were tears and it was profound and you know my my first chapter is is called a tale of two religious experiences because i basically describe his religious experience then i describe my own religious experience and in terms of what they look like, they look very much identical. The only real difference is that I experienced depression afterwards and then questioned that experience, whereas he didn't. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. Yeah. And we come into that area, you know, the great William James, um, author of the varieties of religious experience and credited as one of the fathers of psychology. And there he talks about conversion experiences uh, with significant insight. But he also brings up this idea of noesis, that which we feel we know, that which we believe we know, that we have a sense of certainty about. And that takes us to the point of it is how do we test our experiences? How do we know the truthfulness of our experiences? And which puts us into a a place where somebody's saying, well, I I know God exists. It's sort of, what sort of knowledge is this we're talking about? You know, is this something we can measure in some way scientifically? Or as Stephen Jay Gould and and others have said, is religion, spirituality, a distinct magisterium from science? You know, it's Robert J. Piercing, sorry, Robert J. Robert Piercing, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, this idea that you have Plato and Aristotle, you have quality and quantity. Science measures quantity, and spirituality is the experience of qualities or even qualia within the mind. Yeah, 
I mean, when when you kind of listen to, for example, William Lane Craig talking about why he trusts his experience, he says, it so transformed my life that I couldn't convince myself that it that it wasn't a religious experience. And and I kind of think, well, for somebody who's so strong in terms of critical thinking, the, the logic in that is immediately, the, the, the flaw in the logic is immediately apparent because there are people from multiple religions around the world who have religious experiences. They are just as convinced as he is that their experiences are genuine and their lives are frequently transformed, just like his was. So unless he thinks that, you know, all Christians are somehow better at distinguishing between natural experiences that feel like religious experiences and genuine re religious experiences than all non-Christian theists, mm. which would be a very strange thing for yeah. him to believe, mm. then he has to confront the possibility that there are these natural experiences that are incredibly compelling and that everyone, including him, can confuse a natural experience with a religious experience. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's it's such an odd thing to think that I definitely know that it was a religious experience, but other people can't work it out. Other people from other faiths can't work it out. And almost the claim that Christians can work it out, because he's basically saying to them, you can trust your your experience of God as 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 evidence, but apparently people from other religions can't trust those those natural ex or those religious experiences. So it's mm -hmm. it's a little bit um, it's a bit of a bizarre line of arguments, unless I'm missing something. Yeah, and I mean in Scientology, there there are many mantras within Scientology. Um, I've just talked with Joe Zimhart, who explained to me that one of the definitions of a mantra is a spell. <laughs> But um, one of the mantras in Scientology is what's true for you is true. And I always balked at this, this concept that because I believe it, it's true. Um, and this idea of, you know, in, in, indeed, when I left Scientology, I mean, when I removed my head from Scientology, I decided that there was a difficulty, which is that I had spent nine years learning how to view the world through the lens of Scientology. How was I now going to view Scientology? Was I going to use? And so I had to, to the best of my ability, reject everything yeah. and say, I, I will reincorporate those ideas, which makes sense. I'll look at it piecemeal and, and see what makes sense. And 40 years, it is now 40 years since I left. I'm I'm kind of going, haven't actually reincorporated any of it. Because <laughs> as I looked at it out there, it was all based upon what's true for you is true. And you get in some very simple ways of of showing that, that there's a problem with that, particularly with Scientology, where all Scientologists believe they've had past lives, they've they've reincarnated. Yeah. Hubbard gives various people have been the same person in the past life. Yeah. Well, that's explicable because um, we're all composed of thousands, even millions of little body Satans, sorry, body Thetans, these little yeah. beings. And you could have had one that was with Napoleon and another one that was with Jesus. Oh, yeah. You know, so, you know, the rationality can be brought to bear and make fools of us all fundamentally. But this idea that Scientologists have all experienced these past lives going back 
according to Hubbard, in different texts, 60, 73, 76 trillion years. Yeah. Um, that's a million million, or indeed one and a quarter quadrillion years, which is a thousand million million, if I've counted right. That sounds um, a lot more plausible, yeah. Yeah, and, and here we are in this tiny little short-lived universe that's only yeah. been here for 13.8 billion years. So yeah. if you think you're carrying around with you the um, mental image pictures, as he puts it, the, the memories of all of these lives, all of these trillions of years, then when you come up with one of them in one of your sessions, your Scientology sessions, it should be easy to say, well, okay, you know, you lived in China 200 years ago, talk a little bit of Mandarin. Yeah. And that was the test that I tried, and I've met more than a thousand Scientologists. Not one of, the, one of them could remember a single sentence from a, a, a language they had spoken in a past life. So they might as well not have bothered, frankly. <laughs> you know, why have the experience if you can't do anything with it? Um, yeah. But people will dance around that and, and go, yeah, well, what's true for me is true. I believe this is true. Therefore, it's true. And it's sort of, oh, no, we, we, we cannot base things upon internal experience. There has to be some external measure. Yeah. And I mean, we, we, we kind of see that, that, that split in research. You know, when you look at positivists versus interpretivists, for example, the idea that a person's personal opinion is actually considered valid and that's their reality and whatever. And that's true in some things. You know, with art, that's true. With music, that's true. You know, so if you think that the Rolling Stones are better than the Beatles, then to you, that may be true. I mean, you're definitely wrong. It shows wrong, just how old we are. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely wrong, but that can be true for you. But there are some things that are a lot more sort of objective um, and and certainly th there's going to be contradictions in um, in different people's views of, of, of reality, yeah. And we've seen, you know, with Derrida and postmodernism spreading out of, of, of literary dis deconstruction, which, you know, is fair enough, and becoming this, this dreadful monster that, that roams through academia saying, you know, there are correct views, but everybody's opinion is valid. So my opinion about relativity is just as good as Einstein's. You know, what did he know? Um, I think it's three witches and a... And a a, a cauldron going hubble bubble that's how gravity came about about you know um it it's obviously ridiculous but i think we are seeing a, a kind of degeneration academically throughout the world we're, we're seeing people who no longer rely upon scientific evidence and we're seeing it in government as well we, we have a government minister michael gove who said um we've all had enough of experts when he decided yeah. to bring an examination system in to replace all of the assessment by teachers, basically saying, we don't trust teachers at all. You know, they're all going to lie to get the statistics up. We'll have this exam system against the reality, which is that every two years, the PISA tables are done all around the world for all the schools. And every two years, Scandinavia comes top in the literacy yeah. tables. And they have one examination in their whole system. No SATs, no testing everything. Right at the end, you do an exam. So they're not scared to death all the time or learning the answers of the SATs. They're, they're learning how mm. to do things. They have a higher level of literacy and competence. And experts could have told Michael Gove that, but we've all had enough of experts. And politicians notoriously are practicing something which seems far much more like a cult religion to me than a 
a true estimation of the world. Uh, we would have tackled global warming, what, 50 years ago? We would have done something about it, but it's all the kind of, no, no, we, we can just push it on down further, kick it down the road a bit further. There's, there's also the, the element, and, and again, you've, you've noted this before, that you can always find an expert to support your perspective. We see that with large group awareness trainings. We see that with you know, climate science. Hmm. You know, we've got, oh, I've got a handful of people who say this, and that that kind of stops the 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 progress of of whatever's being discussed. Yeah, um, not that I know very much about that uh, area myself. Um, Safe is not to. Yeah, and I and I I I think that that's a an, another thing that you you kind of notice with a with a lot of the authorities you see um, online on various things is that they will start off in the area of of competency and then suddenly you hear them commenting on things that they really have no business uh commenting on so um yeah and and that it was... and, and it can become you know looking back at something you you said it, it, it can become a, a an argument rather than it i i welcome correction it's one of the things i learned about having left Scientology. if somebody wants to say you made a mistake there and it should be this, then I seek to actually, you know, if I make a mistake on the channel here, I want people to comment on it. I want to be aware yeah. of it. And I want, I will thank them for doing it. This is, this is not the cult of John. This is the group of us all trying to understand the world better. And unfortunately, in academia and in science, you, you know, as well as in religion, you still have these dogmatic, bigoted beliefs where people are and the, and the whole idea of science is to progress by challenging, to get more evidence, to reinterpret the evidence. I mean, one of the most dangerous pieces of science ever done was Raymond Dart in, in your country there, who was at Vitvatasrand. What beautiful language Afrikaans can be. <laughs> Just wonderful. Word. And he'd got things out of the Schwarzkranz cave. I hope I'm getting somewhere close to the pronunciation. Yeah. And from this had determined that there were these tusks and they'd been used to stab other hominids because there were holes in the skulls of other hominids. And this it was announced, I think, in the 1920s, and it became one of the fundamental ideas that the Nazis adopted, that we're all ferociously aggressive. That's our nature. Conrad Lorenz, the Nazi professor, became famous for his ideas on aggression, which were still quite dominant in the 1970s. Then... Yeah. Dart's place at Vitvatasrand was, was taken by a man called Bob Brain. And in 1977, he analyzed these tusks with an electron microscope and he saw marks on them. And he then had his students go out with replicas of them and dig up roots and found that, that this was the marking. He then worked out that when you looked at these skulls in the cave, there would be two penetrative holes. So the, the tusks had still been attached to the tiger-like creature and it was not evidence at all of human predation upon other humans i mean we can go beyond all of that now and say well the fourth force in evolution the fourth dimension in evolution is cultural transmission and we have no excuse saying oh we're like chimps or we're like bonobos because we're smart enough to change our minds at a yeah. moment's notice and indeed our genetics so but it it shows that the interpretation of something 
can be thoroughly wrong, can be thoroughly misguided, and then can be held forward to be truth. And what we're asking for is for people to keep discussing, to keep finding evidence. And it seems that you've yeah. you found your way into an area that has been profoundly underexplored. I think your work and Yuval Laor's work are the most original things I've seen in 40 yeah. years of working in this field, that you've brought something to the table that we can reassess the the behavior of people and and possibly do something helpful because we understand this. And, and once you one understands what the dopaminergic defense hypothesis is, and, and you have dopamine is, is raised up and then dumped down, it tells us a tremendous amount. I, I remember talking to a friend who's um, has a PhD in comparative religion. He's a theologian. I haven't spoken with him for, for way too long. But he came to me because he's also an Anglican vicar and, and was worried about whether the Alpha Course and walking in the light, these things that are standardly used in the Anglican church, were in any way cultish. And when I told him, yes, they are, he laughed at me. <laughs> He just wouldn't accept that there was any manipulation happening within these procedures. Whereas to me, looking from the outside, they're very mild in comparison to some of the things I've seen done, but they do pull you in a certain direction and they do seek to reformulate the way you think. Um, and I mean, I, I guess the, the question there is, I mean, what doesn't do that? I mean, surely the, the entire idea of it is that only at a certain point it becomes and to use the term from the book abnormal you know mm. so i know that you are not comfortable with the term normal and, and abnormal but just in terms of defining an experience or a process or something as being problematic we may not know exactly where that cutoff is but we do we might be able to see a process and we go well that's definitely problematic and another one we go well that's definitely not and mm. somewhere in between clearly there's a a crossover, even though we don't know exactly uh, where it is, I, I suppose. And I mean, I, I actually took the the Alpha course when I was living in in London at uh, Holy Trinity, Holy, Holy Trinity, Brompton, with Nikki Gumbel, who I think was the the person who um, put it together, mm. I, I, I believe. Um, yeah, and at the time, I, I I mean, I hadn't been exposed to LGATs, I hadn't been exposed to any forms of manipulation in terms of understanding them so I maybe didn't pay attention to it but um it seemed relatively benign but I guess that's how they all seem so yeah, yeah. and 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 I would say that too that, that that we have to rate things in in terms of what is or isn't normal um it, it's probably just a matter of definition if something is within the bell curve of exactly usual experience then I'm I'm happy with the word it's just the 1950s craze to make people normal and what that yes. might mean so where we're we're dealing with normal being a fairly wide range of traits and yeah. abnormal being beyond those traits in one way and subnormal being beneath those traits in another yeah. way and it, and everything every educational experience you know I have a friend whose uh, daughter I think she was seven at the time and she was being given mindfulness classes in school and I was a little bit alarmed about this because mindfulness meditations definitely induce a physiological state, the Gansfeld effect, where, where people will start to, you know, there'll be visual impairment. Um, there can be audio impairment. 
I have a great deal of experience of it because I learned Zen meditation as an 18 yeah. year old and then had nine years in Scientology of staring at people, sorry, confronting people, learning how to do that and thinking there must be something wrong with me because of these hallucinations, these mild hallucinations I have. And later realizing there's something wrong with you if you don't, you know, the brain fills in it, it, you know, we provide information where there isn't quite enough. We turn up the sensor to see if we're missing information and start hearing the feedback in our own system. So yeah, anything, you know, kids going to kindergarten, when I see a bunch of kids sat around a teacher, I'm sure we could analyze that in terms of the guru and the followers and, you know, these poor impressionable four-year-olds and what's happening yeah. to them. So it is a matter of degree. And then it's a matter of, of, of what happens to the person afterwards. Are they then, you know, pulled into a, a sex slave cult or, or does it just mean that they're nice to people and go to church on a Sunday, which is don't really well, have I a problem mean, I, with that. Yeah. I mean, I had this, this conversation with somebody a, a little while ago, a couple of years ago and, and the idea of, of manipulation. So you can manipulate somebody to, in a way that's going to be highly beneficial for them. So to me, the manipulation is not necessarily about the, the end result. Although when you combine manipulation with a, an, an end result where you're taking advantage of them, then clearly that's the most problematic uh, form of that. But you, you certainly could use processes to shift the way a person thinks, behaves, and whatever mm -hmm. that circumnavigates their critical thinking to get them to do things that would be beneficial for them in the, in the long term. And I guess the the ethical question around that is is, is a slightly a slightly different and and more complicated one. Yeah, is there a hidden agenda? Um, to to what extent will the person come to understand your motives in in teaching them and what's being sold? And yeah. you know, we do know that people can have the very best of intentions and create catastrophe out of what they're doing so having you know openness and transparency those words that politicians use but don't actually apply to them in any way that they are a necessary part manipulation per se is is really something where it differs from education or, or straightforward influence in that there is an agenda there is something that you want the person to do you know whether yeah. it's buying a set of cookware or or joining the moonies um, yeah. there's, there's something else going on and that openness is important. And again, that's about taking a scientific view of the world, taking a view of the world where you're open to change and reinterpretation of, of ideas, um, to, to move forward, to understand better, to do better in the world, to achieve something more. And I, th um, I think that the, sorry, no, yeah, I, mean, I, I, I think that the, that the comment that you made earlier about being open to reviewing your own mm. things that you've said and, you know, getting feedback, even on these YouTube videos where somebody might say, oh, what about this? And you've got to kind of think about it and that you welcome that sort of thing is, is great. And you've noted that obviously in, in cults or problematic groups and sometimes in religions, people are very reluctant to review what they've, what they've done or thought. And I mean, that's one mm -hmm. of the, the primary findings from social psychology is that our behaviors are often better indicators or predictors of our 
beliefs than our beliefs are of our behaviors. Mm. So once we've done something and, uh, you know, uh, Fessinger would, would call it cognitive dissonance and Robert Cialdini would call it commitment and consistency. Once we've behaved in a particular way and particularly in a, in a way where we've publicly revealed our views about something, it then it becomes very different, difficult to go back on some of those things because it threatens who we are. You know, religion can be a big part of who we are. If you're part of a problematic group, that group is is often going to be a very big part of who you are. And with academics, it's the it's the same thing. So I like to think that if somebody came up and looked at my work and said, well, you're completely wrong over over here, and this is, you know, the the logic is flawed that I would graciously just be like, oh, well, thank you. That's amazing. I'm, I'm so happy about that. I'm sure you but, would, John. <laughs> but but unconsciously, of course, it's going to be like, I've been thinking this for 13 years now, and mm -hmm. I've done a PhD, and I've done whatever. So it's going to be very difficult to acknowledge um, those things. But I think mm -hmm. at least being aware of that unconscious need to want to remain right and how this is a big part of my identity will hopefully make me a little bit more um, open to to hearing criticism um, and and processing it because I think ultimately my my identity you know as somebody with bipolar disorder I think a lot of my identity comes from wanting to be rational because I can be so irrational at times that's something that I value so highly I don't mm -hmm. want to believe things that are that are not true because mm -hmm. you know when you're delusional you believe these really strange things and so i almost want to overcompensate on on the side of of rationality and so if that is where my identity is is coming from hopefully that means that if somebody presents me with evidence that uh, contradicts my um my arguments or or weakens them or whatever i can take it and kind of go okay well that's um that makes sense and i can shift my views accordingly because basically that's what i'm asking people to do when i'm mm. reading this book i'm asking people who may have um beliefs you know that they, they may be christian for example they may be reading this book and it might threaten what they they believe yeah. and so i can't ask people to do that and have something that that questions something so central to who they are if i'm not willing to to do the same if, if information comes in my direction you know and it also psychologically we have the the fundamental attribution error that that um we we tend to uh have a view of you know so if if somebody's late coming to a meeting with me then it's you know why are they messing with me why have they done this and yeah, if i'm late yeah. coming to a meeting with someone else it's because there was bad traffic yeah. that that evaluation of other people leveling that out and being willing to to tolerate those things is difficult. Also, of course, when one has built a reputation upon something, it's like if somebody comes to me and says, actually, and it, it has happened, it has happened actually years ago. There's a guy called Perry Chapdelaine, who was a mathematician who was involved with Ron Hubbard in the early 1950s and was the co-author of some of Hubbard's work, the Dianetic Axioms, in fact. And um, he said, Hubbard said, bring a bottle of scotch and let's write something that looks scientific. And this guy had left in the 1950s and I'm in touch with him. And he wrote me this letter where he said, you know, when you, as you get older, you'll realize that Ron Hubbard was right about most things. 
and I've got 40 years older during that time yeah. and it still hasn't happened. I'm still not clever enough for that particular penny to have dropped. Yeah. Um, it still looks like ludicrous nonsense to me from where I am. But to be able to try and take that position of humility, that thing that is preached within Christianity and various other religions, to actually sit back from it and, and go, yeah, let's consider that. What makes that very difficult is when somebody is aggressive in their approach towards you. So rather than disagreeing yeah. agreeably, as I'm known to say, they will come and call you an idiot and start trying to, or or worse yet, they're a novice in, in something and they've read one textbook about it, which is now the way, the truth and the life. And they will now quote that at you to, to disprove yeah. what you're doing rather than, you know, so wanting an argument, wanting a fight, rather than wanting a discussion or a debate uh, and, yeah. you know, an attempt to... And I, th I think that that's part of the problem with with discussions that happen in YouTube comments is that it's public. So there's the, the possibility of, of feeling embarrassed. So people will kind of defend themselves to the death rather than acknowledging whether they they're kind of right or wrong in terms of that that attribution error i i, I think it, it it is such an important thing and I, I i think hopefully the the book comes across in a way that you know i mean i, I basically say i my my view on whether god exists or not is is still up for grabs i'm i'm not an, an atheist so yeah. there's definitely not not a hardline view there I also I also think that anyone who reads it and, and understands the depression that I went through, you know, having quit my job and working for the church and the the sort of suffering that I went through for, you know, months, I I, I think it's it's difficult for somebody to read that and kind of think to themselves, I I can't understand why this person would question their their beliefs at this point you know i think it's very reasonable when you read it to kind of go well i think anyone in that position would would maybe question uh what was going on so um maybe i've got too up too much optimism and too much faith in humanity and maybe people are just going to um hate me and they're, they're going to be sort of terrible comments about what my motives mm. were but my motives weren't to try to uh, attack religion or to, to attack mm. christianity it was very much just a a process for me of trying to to figure this thing out and you, you you've you've been very very complimentary about the the sort of novelty of the the work that i've done but a, a lot of it had kind of been done already i feel like i've i've sort of just put pieces together in a way maybe that that people mm -hmm. haven't done before so the relationship between dopamine and religion has been in the last couple of decades there's been a huge amount of research that's been done Mm. on that so both from pharmacological studies so through the use of various drugs and people have religious experiences uh you know functional imaging uh, of people's brains while they're having mystical and religious experience so the 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 literature on the relationship between dopamine and religious experiences is, is quite extensive the, mm. the literature on the relationship between bipolar mania and religious experiences pre-existed all that i've done is kind of said well here's a mechanism by which you can generate basically bipolar type experiences so uh, experiences that that mirror or look a lot like hypomania and and mania this is the process that that 
you can use to do it. And this is how Christianity incorporates this, this process. Um, so that's really just the, the, the thing that, that I've done. It's not, it's not as if I've kind of worked out a whole bunch of stuff. I've really just kind of gone, okay, well, those things seem to, um, to fit together in, a, in an interesting way which um, coincidentally is, is something that is associated with bipolar disorder. So if you read the, <laughs> the, the book, the whole, the whole thing of kind of loose associations and of linking things in a, in a slightly unique mm. and novel way is one of the things you often see with elevations in dopamine or with um, hypomania and mania. And those associations can become so loose that it becomes just delusional, which has happened to me a number of times and as I showed you with that book that I wrote before, that was, you know, I don't know, 800 pages or whatever that I wrote in a month. Um, certainly a lot of loose associations there and very difficult to follow and it makes no sense and quite, quite delusional. Um, but I think what I've managed to do now after a long time is really just distill the ideas down into something that's quite short. The book is probably about 100, 110 pages, mm. not very long only the the information that's absolutely necessary and from everyone that's read it so far apparently it makes a lot of sense even if you don't have a background in psychology or, or neuroscience i think i explain it in a way that is is fairly easy for hmm. for most people to follow your writing is certainly very lucid and it, it, yes it it is a matter of a synthesis isn't it that that people have been looking at all sorts of things when we mentioning temp temporal lobe epilepsy in 1977, um, Bear Fedio delivered their paper and we've got this wonderful novel thing, which used to be called Dostoevsky syndrome. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't that nobody had noticed it. And in fact, Dostoevsky had described that and various other conditions. I mean, um, I'm reading The Devil, Devils at the moment and uh, in there, there's uh, a, a wonderful Dostoevsky novel called A Friend of the Family, which is quite hard to get hold of. It was last translated in the 1920s. Yeah. But he had hypergraphia, which is the first symptom of Dostoevsky syndrome. He he yeah. couldn't stop writing. And we are so lucky that a man of such perception was able to keep on writing. You know, yeah. in Friend of the Family, he gives the best description I've ever read of a malignant narcissist a hundred years before Eric Fromm put it into the literature. So, um, but that perceiving something as it's going on, synthesizing things and making them useful. And in this case, by pulling together this work, it not only shows us what large group awareness trainings are doing in basically bringing about hypomanic um, or excessively happy states, uh, yeah. and how deliberate that is, it also applies further that when we look at the way that uh, Scientology works or the, the Krishna consciousness movement or Rajneesh or wherever, this is work that, that can be applied there. And there are, there are certain tests that can be done. It can be found out to what yeah. extent this is true. And let's underline again, I too am not an atheist. I'm an agnostic. Yeah. I follow Eric from in this and I'm an agnostic mystic. I, I am somebody who wishes to understand the truth and day by day realizes how much further away from it he is. Yeah. But and and so it 
it's certainly, you know, I, I talked last week with um, Sean McCraney, who is a, a redeemed um, predator. He's somebody who, who pretty much is a sociopath or whatever word you want to use. And um, then had a realization, which for him is was a, an experience of God. And for the last 26 years has been a decent or fairly decent human being, has tried hard to and yeah. works with it every day. And I have only admiration for this man and what exactly. he's done. And it, yeah. it's of no concern to me what he believes in, so long as what he believes in leads to him behaving in a, in a, a good and um, beneficent way towards other people, which he does. So just in case anybody's... And, and another little point about YouTube channels and comments, we they know who we are. <laughs> but yeah. most of the comment, comments that we're going to get will come from troll 1,479 or what have you. And so that, that we do get these people and we delete their comments. Sorry. Yeah. You know, if, if people just have spleen to express and no rational point, then not really interested. But anybody that wants to discuss these ideas will let you know when, when this goes up. And, yeah, um, and I, I think something that you've, that you've uh, said now also, um, just reminds me, you you mentioned that it allows him to be a better person and it allows him to to, to behave in a way that um, is obviously better for society and, and everyone mm -hmm. around him. Um, the, the the argument that I that I make in my in my book is that it's actually our well, it's actually our natural capacity for conscience that allows groups like Elgats and Christianity to generate feelings of guilt, shame, inadequacy, fear, that sort of thing. If we didn't have yeah. an ability to feel bad about things that we've done, if we didn't have an ability to, to feel like we weren't measuring up to whatever standards are being set, if we didn't feel like I've done something wrong, I've hurt somebody, I'm concerned about people in my family, all of those negative all of that psychological suffering comes from a position of, of conscience. Mm. So my argument is that without the ability to feel those negative emotions, you're not going to get that elevation of dopamine that you might interpret as, as God. Mm. So the, while, you know, the, the arguments ha has been made that without God, people would just, you know, go around doing whatever they they felt like doing. I think maybe that that is true. But what they feel like doing, I believe, is is probably good things. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have such a negative view of of humanity. I think most people naturally want to do good. They naturally like seeing people doing well. They they naturally um, care about other people. That's what we're like. We're social. We've evolved to be social and they're very good arguments that morality is is something that has um, evolved. So I don't have that fear that if you had to remove God from the equation, people would just start raping and murdering and doing all those sorts of things. I actually think that the reason that people have certainly some religious experiences because of that capacity for conscience, which um, may have evolved rather than um, you know, may have come from God. 
Yes. And, and we get into the usual discussion of what on earth we mean by God. And you know, maybe the quickest way to, to head off that argument is to look at, I believe, and I'm sure there's a philologist in, in the audience who will correct me if I'm wrong, that the word God and the word good are cognate. They come from the same place. And so if we are looking to say there is goodness in, in the universe, and in, in we can tap into that, even if it's something that we create before we tap into it, then that too could be useful. We then have the impersonalists, the Buddhists who believe in Buddha mind and not an individual consciousness, the Taoists who believe in the Tao, the Egyptians who believed in Ma'at, beyond, you know, and, you know, Chinese philosophy pushes towards the idea that the gods themselves are simply manifestations of of forces and these forces are generated by us i think spiritually uh, you know i i lost faith in just about everything as i went along and it didn't seem necessary and it didn't bother me and i couldn't you know i don't think about as jung su said i don't know where i was before i was born i don't know where i am after i die so let's get on with it you know let's let's be in the eternal now and do what we can so i think you know and Meister Eckhart in the Christian tradition that God proceeds from the Godhead and the Godhead proceeds from the ground of being. And so there are lots of lovely and elegant ways of looking at this. There's no need to come down to a simple level of, you know, the beardy guy that, that Michelangelo did a big picture of, which I think was blasphemous, really, if you look at the commandments and not portraying God. But let's not go against Michelangelo. He's a clever bloke. but. We don't have to become that attached. I also feel that when people become aggressive, when their beliefs are questioned, it's because they don't really believe it. They want, you know, if they're content within their beliefs, and I have many friends who are, um, then they don't feel argumentative about it. They don't feel challenged. They go, well, you know, yeah, I believe in God. You don't have to. Yeah. And we go from there. Yeah, and I, and I I think that all of those manifestations or versions of, of God that you've mentioned mm. are not things that I know very much about. And I think maybe my naivety in, the, in this space is, is quite a good thing. I've got a very yeah. limited understanding. I'm like, well, this is how it works. I think it works maybe in, in Christianity based on my my limited um, understanding of, mm. of other religions. So this is the, the one that I kind of know about. And what what you said earlier, I I like because I I think that it's I think that it's likely to be true just because I'm talking about something that is based on human um, neurochemistry, not on Christian neurochemistry. Mm -hmm. So I I do think that the the findings and the arguments are going to be transferable and relevant in other spaces, but it will be. I think if you're a Buddhist and you read it, you might go, oh, okay, well, that actually makes sense here. Yeah, I certainly think that from the little that I understand of Scientology, that that people might read it and kind of go, oh, okay, well, that would explain maybe what happened in, in this sort of session over here. Same thing, you know, with the, you know, the Moonies and their their workshops and that sort of thing. So I think that people will be able to connect the dots um, in their own lives. But even at a more um even at a more basic level, so stepping away from religious beliefs, the process of psychological suffering followed by reward 
is something that you see in any work of literature in any movie in any whatever just not at the same level i mean a really good movie or book is one that has you worried and concerned and uncertain of how this thing is going to turn out and then there's resolution at the end mm -hmm. and then you feel the sense of of kind of reward and that's if you kind of feel like i know exactly how this thing's going to end it doesn't generate the same level of joy and whatever and that's not going to be the same as going through a you know a three four five day large group awareness training or maybe as a christian contemplating guilt shame and inadequacy and really feeling all of these things about who you are as a human and then suddenly being freed from it but you know if you watch a great movie it's going to get you to feel some of those things to a slightly lesser degree and then you're going to get the resolution at the end and so i think that the the applications of the dopaminergic defense or whatever you want to call it um you know move beyond just talking about uh, religion as well mm. yeah i think it's absolutely true and and i think that that we we exist in the universe of belief um i'm told because i'm certainly never going to read it that immanuel kant put forward the view that there is the universe around us but we each of us live in our interpretation of the universe and understanding the extent to which our neurochemistry affects our interpretation of the universe will allow us to make better decisions i believe so you know i think it's important well there we are and this was going to be a short yes. one john it wasn't i mean it was fairly short wasn't it it's about an hour <laughs> oh that's yeah that's that's good for us um yeah I'm quite it's, it's about right it. it's about right yeah. so um tremendous pleasure talking with you as ever and um we'll come back in come back in a couple of months and and do some more um Fantastic. hopefully yeah and uh yeah uh, hopefully by the next time that we chat the book will be available and i can get you to put up a link to a, a site or something like that mm -hmm. but still a bit of work to do there yeah but yeah thanks so much and have a great uh a break over christmas or whatever your your festivities involve Annika or, or exactly. Diwali or whatever I'm celebrating this time won't be Diwali then but um yeah. that was just the only festival that came to mind from another religion at that point yeah. grand thank you so much John always a pleasure all right cheers then hi John here thanks for watching we'd appreciate it very much if you would click like as well as subscribe and click the bell for notifications Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.